As I was studying for this sermon, I was really excited about it. It's been one that I've been wanting to do for a while. And um, once I started writing it, I realized that it was going to be um, too much for just one sermon. So I split it up into two. Uh, we're going to have two sermons on the story of Jonah, um, and it's entitled Tickets to Tarshish, which uh, we're going to explain that, that, uh, that title here uh, later on today. So we're going to have a part one and a part two. So I'm not going to be here next week, and the week after that is men's retreat. So um, you're going to have to wait probably three weeks to get part two. So really remember today. <laughs> you know, the book of Jonah is only four chapters long, and it's 48 verses in total. For the average reader, it only takes about 10 minutes to read the story of Jonah. Yet when you look online, and it's an amazing thing to have the internet at your fingertips because you have so much information that just comes alive, it can be a real blessing. It can also be a real curse to many as well. But if you look online and you look at Bible skeptics, you'll find that many skeptics don't have a problem with the book of Genesis. Many don't have problems with the book of Revelation or Matthew. But one of the books that Bible skeptics focus in on the most is the book we're going to be looking at today, the book of Jonah. There's a few reasons why that is. And two of the verses that they focus most on, if those two verses were taken out of the book of Jonah, often the skeptics probably wouldn't have a problem. You're probably wondering what these two verses are. It's in Jonah chapter 1 and the last verse of that chapter, Jonah 1.17. This, this is a verse that many scientists and skeptics have a problem with. It says, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now that seems a little bit extreme, doesn't it? It's quite a story, the story of Jonah. It's very popular among children today, but many scientists and skeptics believe that it would be impossible for a man to be inside the belly of a fish for three days and for three nights. We're going to be talking a little bit about that today. The other verse that skeptics have a problem with was the, is the last verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. When you look at the story of Jonah, which we're going to be doing, you find that it's a pretty unbelievable story, isn't it? There's no other story in Scripture in the history of the world that really talks about a fish swallowing a man whole and then spitting him up a little bit later. It's an amazing story. But should we as Christians believe in the validity of the story of Jonah? Absolutely. And there's a few reasons that I believe that to be true. We're going to be looking at the scientific evidence of why that should be true today, which is going to be awesome. I'm excited to do that. But number one, apart from the scientific evidence, I believe that it's in the Word of God. We should believe it. Amen. Methods of science and different theories of science and laws of science change quite often, with the exception of a few. You think of like the law of gravity and things like that, right? Those stay pretty true. But science is changing all the time, isn't it? If you take a look at medical science, you found back in the day that people would prescribe cigarettes for asthma, right? So science is constantly changing, and often science is dead wrong. But if anything comes up against the Bible, even if science contradicts the Bible, brothers and sisters, I'm going to believe in the Word of God. So one of the reasons I believe Jonah to be true is that it's in the Bible. But another reason I believe it to be true is in the story of Luke, if you want to turn there. Luke chapter 11. Keep your finger in the book of Jonah because we're going to be back there. But Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, 29 through 30. Jesus is speaking in this statement here in Luke chapter 11, 29 through 30. 
wait for you to get there. Luke eleven twenty nine says, And when the people were gathered thick together, there was a lot of people there, he, being Jesus, began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall be no sign given it, but the sign of Jonas, or Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. If you take a look at Christ, he references the book of Jonah. So did obviously Christ believe in the story of Jonah? What do you think? He did, didn't he? So if the Bible says it, and it's, it's included in the canonization of the Bible, and if Jesus believed in the story of Jonah, do you think we should as well? Yeah. Absolutely, right? But let's take a look at the story of Jonah specifically now that we know that the validity of it is true. Go back to the book of Jonah, and we're going to reread our scripture verse. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and we find this prophet of the Lord that's given a certain command. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. I want to stop there. Perhaps one of the greatest understatements that the Bible ever makes is that Nineveh was a great, wicked city. That's to put it very lightly. I'm a big history buff, as a lot of you know, and this week I decided to take a look into the history of Nineveh itself. Now, Nineveh was an Assyrian city. At one time, it was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria had great marble walls. It was, it was very comparable to the nation of Babylon at the time, and Assyria did some things that are unspeakable, especially in this setting today. I did some research this week, and I found something called Assyrian reliefs. Assyrian reliefs are stone carvings that they used to put on the walls of their palaces, in their homes, and in their town squares. I was tempted to show you some of these stone carvings or Assyrian reliefs that were inside the city of Nineveh when the archaeologists dug it up a little bit. And these stone carvings that were found in Nineveh were so graphic that I didn't feel comfortable putting them on the screen in church service. I know there's a lot of children here today, and so that's one of the reasons that I didn't. But if you're curious about what these stone carvings were all about, I posted them on my Facebook yesterday. So if you want to go to those sometime and take a look at what's depicted there, you'll find that these Ninevites were extremely brutal people. If you look at the history of nations, especially in the old world around the 500 BCE, or BC as we Christians say, in 500 BC, you'll find that most nations had pretty bad kings, and then every once in a while, they'd have a good-hearted one. They'd have a humanitarian. You think of the nations of Israel. They had some pretty bad kings, didn't they? But they had some great ones as well. You think of Joash and things like that. But Assyria, or Nineveh, is very different because when you look at all of the kings of their time, you'll find that there wasn't an ounce of mercy or humanitarian among any of them. They were completely brutal people. And the Assyrians hated one people the most. Assyrians, or the Ninevites, hated everybody. But they hated one nation the most, the Jews. It's said that they went to the land of Judea, and they captured many Jews and brought them back to Nineveh. And these Assyrian reliefs that are found inside the walls of Nineveh write the story of what they did to some of these Jewish people. 
And to put it lightly and to give one mild example of what they did, there's a relief that is there that depicts them taking Jewish children and in front of the palace in the town square, impaling them with a big stick. Impaling them to the point where it didn't come through any of their main arteries to where they were still alive as they were hanging there. They would light a slow-burning fire underneath them and wait for their skin to bubble and then peel it off. It's said that sometimes as these people were being tortured to death, it took two weeks for them to actually die. And the Assyrians loved to do this. A lot of historians call them the old world Nazis of their time. Now, I only say that to give you a true picture of what Jonah was really thinking. When we tell this story, oftentimes we say, Jonah, what are you doing, man? God told you to go somewhere. Why don't you just go? But what God had just told Jonah to do probably scared him to his wit's end. Jonah knew everything about the Ninevites. Jonah knew who the Assyrians were. He had heard of those stories. He had heard that the king loved to have heads inside his room for him to look at when he fell asleep at night. He knew all of this. But yet God had told him to go. You see, the Ninevites were people that worshipped a god that was very prominent among the pagan nations of that time. They were called, they, they worshipped in a god by the name of Ishtar. A lot of people know Ishtar, where we get the term Easter. And Ishtar was a god or a goddess that was part man and was part fish. Really interesting to think about. We're going to talk to you on that in a minute. Part god and part fish. And God told Jonah to do what? To go. Now, if you knew all of that and God told you to go to that place, what would be going on in your mind? I would be a little bit worried. But Jonah, obviously, this wasn't the first time that God had talked to him. If we believe in a God that can protect us from anything, if we believe in a God that can perform miracles, and if we're close to him, we should go. Amen. And God fully expected for Jonah to go. God had faith that Jonah would obey him, or God wouldn't have asked him at all. But take a look at what Jonah does here in verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee, we all know the story, unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So here we find Jonah, and Jonah decides, he justifies it in his mind somehow, that he's going to go to a place called Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is a place you don't find in the Bible anywhere else, and you don't really find it in world history. The reason being is because Tarshish was a long, long ways off from the world and scholars of that time. A lot of historians believe that Tarshish, get this, was all the way in the Philippines. Jonah was going to go as far away as possible, even to the Philippines, if that's the case. Why? because he was so scared of these Ninevites. The Bible actually gives us a reference of this. If you take just a couple books forward, you'll go Jonah, Micah, and then you'll hit Nahum. We're going to be looking at Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. I love how the Bible explains this. Historians take a look at Nahum chapter 3 as one of the most accurate descriptions of what Nineveh was really like. The Bible is an amazing book, isn't it? Even some secular historians have to go back to the Bible for their facts. I love it. 
Nahum chapter 3 in verse 1. This is what the Bible says about Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departs not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels, of the prancing of the horses and of the jumping chariots. These Ninevites were known to have 15,000 chariots at a time go into battle. Verse 3, the horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain, and a great number of carcasses, and there is none upon end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. This is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about Nineveh. And Jonah was called to go. Jonah somehow justified it in his mind to go somewhere completely opposite, possibly the Philippines. And so he goes and he buys a ticket. And take a look at what happens here. Go back to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. And there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners, not the baseball team, but sailors, the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. I don't know about you, I'm a pretty heavy sleeper. But when something out of the ordinary comes up, I I wake up pretty quickly. Jonah was down there in the hold of a ship, and it said that the ship was being rocked so harshly that it was about ready to come apart. Do you think he would have woken up if that was happening? Probably. But the ship captain wakes up Jonah, but I just want to pause here and take a look at what Jonah had been doing. Jonah was down on his faith with God, to put it plainly. Jonah was down on his relationship with God. And according to the record that we just read in Jonah 1, Jonah went down to Joppa. Then, preceding that, Jonah went down into the hold of that ship, and Jonah went down to sleep. Pretty soon we're going to find that Jonah gets cast down deeper than possibly any man ever has been before. The first submarine ride, if you will. But Jonah is spiraling to a place that was the lowest point of his ministry, the lowest point of his Christian walk or his life. I sympathize with Jonah a little bit because Jonah was a preacher, and we're all called to be missionaries and preachers, amen? And in any preacher's life, I don't care who it is, a preacher is going to be sent to a place where they're going to be tested by the devil, where everybody is against them. The entire city seems to be against them. Even the church may be divided. This isn't my area of testing, by the way. I love the Bristol church. But Jonah was being tested. And he decided to go to sleep. Now, take a look at what happens. We'll continue reading here in verse 6. So the shipmaster came to him and said to him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so, be that God will, not, will think upon us that we will perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and it fell upon Jonah. When Jonah was woken up, do you think he knew why that storm had been called upon that ship? He obviously did, because later on that chapter he admits it. 
And Jonah doesn't admit it up front, but what does he let happen? He lets these pagan cast lots, and I believe that God probably used those lots to point to him. Now, lots at that time were pretty much a form of gambling, and I believe that gambling is something that should be completely against our Christian principle. What do you think? Uh, there's a famous, well, not fa- well, maybe famous, there's a famous Adventist chef called Mark Anthony. I don't know if you know who that is. He's been around this area before. And Mark Anthony used to own a casino in Las Vegas. That's where he learned how to cook. And Mark Anthony said that when he was owning this casino business in Las Vegas, he walked up to a slot machine, and there was a widow woman that was there, and she had eight credit cards lined up at the slot machine, and she had maxed out all eight of them over the years playing at this casino. She was heavy in debt. And Mark Anthony said that he went up to her and said, listen, I think now is the time for you to stop being the proprietor. He felt guilty because he had taken all that money. He was the cause of that woman's grief. The woman looked at him and said, I have $5 left on this credit card. If I win big today, I'll take care of all my problems. The devil definitely uses, I think, the gambling industry to take people away from the word of God and also to cause them a lot of pain and heartache. But at this time period, when those lots were cast, I believe that God somehow used them, and it pointed to Jonah. And as these pagan shipmates looked at Jonah, everything spilled out of him, right? And Jonah begins to admit to them that he is a Hebrew. We pick this up here in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 8 and 9. Then said they to him, tell us, we pray, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And whose people are you? Verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This is really, really interesting. This must have not been the first time that these sailors had heard about the Hebrew God. Because when Jonah says, listen, I've been running away from the Hebrew God, these men were instantly frightened. They knew that this Hebrew God was different than their other gods. And as Jonah was there and he was asleep, I feel oftentimes we as Seventh-day Adventists are asleep today. We're very comfortable in our walk with the Lord, as we should be, amen? We're very comfortable in our church. We're very comfortable in our homes and our families. And as we look around us in the world today, we must realize that there is a tempest being blown about. And there are people that are crying out for help. And God has called us, just like Jonah, to go and preach the gospel to them. And yet so many of us remain asleep. Don't be shaken awake. So, Jonah here begins to admit to them about who he is. And these men continue to say, how do we get this whole tempest to stop? And Jonah says, the only way that you can get this tempest to stop, you know the story, is to throw me overboard. And these men knew that it was the Jehovah God that had caused this storm, but still they did everything in their power to row the boat back to shore. The Bible tells us that. And these mariners were probably very seafaring men. They had probably been in storms before, and they knew what they were doing. And so they tried their best to get back to shore in this boat, but did they fail? They sure did, because they were going against the creator of the sea, the creator of the universe. And finally, they were at their wit's end, 
And so they took Jonah, if you can just imagine this, these sailors throwing Jonah overboard, or if Jonah went by his own free will, but Jonah was cast overboard here. And look what happens in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the, to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought. It was very tempestuous against them. Wherefore, they cried to the Lord and said, We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, hast done as it pleased. So they took up Jonah and cast him into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. I love this. Was Jonah being faithful to his call? He wasn't, was he? Was Jonah being faithful to his God? Were they in a good spot right then? They weren't, were they? Jonah hadn't even prayed to God at this point. But yet, as he was being thrown overboard, and that sea remained calm, I don't know if if we can even picture what this would be like, but these mariners were in this storm, fearing for their lives, and as soon as they threw Jonah overboard, what happens? The sea was calm. Talk about faith building, right? Jonah saw that too. He must have been pretty built in his faith as well, knowing that he shouldn't have run from God. And as all these mariners saw that this had actually taken place and that the sea was calm, what did they do? They actually offered a sacrifice and they prayed to the Jehovah God. Is it safe to say that these sailors became believers in the God of Israel and our God today? It is, isn't it? Even though Jonah was going away from God, Even though Jonah wasn't being used by God at that point, God still used him. Isn't that powerful? But what more could have God done through Jonah if he would have been faithful to God? It's powerful to think about. But God still used Jonah, even in this situation. Verse 17 is that one verse. Now the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. When we hear the story, we think that Jonah and the whale, right? And a lot of people are quick to point out that the Bible never mentions that there was a whale that swallowed Jonah. And you're right, there isn't. If you take the original language there of what that fish was, you take a look at it, it actually means sea monster. Isn't that interesting? Jonah was swallowed by an unidentified fish that they hadn't seen before. And as Jonah was swallowed there, he was in the belly of the fish for how long? Three days and three nights. This is really interesting. Jonah was in the ship asleep when it was being rocked back and forth in the storm. Jonah was cast overboard and swallowed by a fish for three days and three nights. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? The sign of Jonah, just like Jesus talked about in Luke and also does in Matthew. Now, this is where the scientists say that it would be impossible for any fish to keep Jonah alive inside a stomach for three days and three nights. Take a look at what Jonah says in his prayer when he's in this fish in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Jonah's praying here, and he says, The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord, my God. I don't know how this happened. If Moses was, uh, Moses, if Jonah was there bobbing on the sea, and then a fish just came up and swallowed him, and the sailors saw it, that would have been horrific. Talk about putting the fear of the Lord in them. 
But Jonah somehow was swallowed by this fish. And as we talked about before, Jonah was down on his luck. I don't believe in luck. But if you believed in lots, you believed in luck. So Jonah was down on his luck, according to these mariners. He was down in his relationship with God. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the hold of the, of the boat. He went down in sleep. He was cast down into the water. He was cast into the down into the belly of the fish. And now he was cast down into the depths of the ocean. Jonah was as far down as you can get. Jonah had hit rock bottom at this point. Now, I don't need to tell you about what it would probably be like to be in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, but it must have been horrific. It must have been pitch black, right? If you're submerged that far in the belly of a fish below sea, there's not going to be any light that's allowed to be there. It probably stuck a little bit, didn't it? Said there was seaweed wrapped about his head. He didn't know where he was, and he couldn't really get his bearings. He actually compares it in Jonah chapter 2 to being in hell. And he said it was like he, it lasted forever, which is a point that we use saying that hell doesn't last forever because Jonah was in the belly of the fish forever, but it did end. Anyways, as Jonah was there in the belly of the fish, he offered up a prayer to the Lord. And did the Lord listen? He certainly did. Now, to all the skeptics that say that it is impossible for a man to be in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, my first response is I believe in the Bible and the Bible says it to be so, and I believe it. Amen. And that my Savior said it to be so. And even though they think it's impossible, I believe it. But there's a story back in 1912 of a man who was fishing along the coast of, the, of Key West in Florida, I believe it was. And he was fishing there just normally. He was just sightseeing and fishing. And a fish latched on to his fish hook, which he was excited about. But soon they realized that this wasn't just any old fish. It's said that the man battled this fish for a grand total of 39 hours. I don't have the patience for that. But he battled it for 39 hours. It was a fish that they had never seen before. And as this man finally reeled in the fish, he probably took shifts with other people. As he finally reeled in this fish of 30, 39 hours, they measured it, and it was 45 feet long, and it weighed 30,000 pounds. 15 tons. This was a fish that no one had ever seen the likes of before. It was unidentified then, and it still is unidentified now. It's very interesting, but scientists say that we know more about the universe and space than we do at the depths of our ocean. Isn't that curious? There are many species that are living in the ocean today that we have no clue are even there, and oftentimes they find a new one that pops up that they thought was extinct millions of years ago, and then it vanishes as quickly as they saw it. But they caught this certain fish, and it wasn't a whale. It was definitely a fish, 30,000 pounds, 45 feet long. But what was interesting was this. It took that man about 40 hours to reel it in, right? Which meant that that fish hadn't eaten in 40 hours. As they reeled that fish in and opened its mouth, they found that there was a 1,500-pound octopus that that fish had eaten whole. 1,500 pounds. It had at least been there for three days. And as they took that octopus out, that 1,500-pound octopus, they found that that octopus was still alive. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm not saying that this is the fish that swallowed Jonah. What I'm saying is that it's possible for it to happen. 
the Smithsonian Museum caught, caught wind of it, and they ordered every, um, every uh, funeral home in the area for all the embalming fluid that they had. And it took like 20 oil barrels of embalming fluid to preserve this great fish. And it's actually on display in the Smithsonian Museum in Britain, I believe it is, and it's still there today. But look, take a look at Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. There's one word here that's very interesting. It says, now the Lord had, and here's the word, prepared. It's not below God, and it's not above God, and it's not impossible for God for this very moment to create a fish specifically designed for Jonah, is it? I don't know if that's what happened. I don't know if God used a fish like this. I'm not sure. But brothers and sisters, I know what happened. I don't know how in the Bible that Jesus was able to put his hand upon a dead child and automatically, a few seconds later, that child lived, although he was dead. I don't know how Israelites could march around Jericho and blow a couple trumpets and that mighty city falls down. I don't know how lions keep their mouth shut while a prophet is there and they haven't been fed and who knows how long. There are full of mysteries in the Bible, isn't there? There are full of things that we as human beings can't comprehend and maybe doesn't add up to our science that we know today. But that's because our Father in heaven is far greater than our science can even imagine today. And I believe that as Jonah there was swallowed by that fish, that God did not want to harm him, but that he still had a plan for Jonah. Amen. Jonah here was at his lowest, but God still had a plan for him. Now, I want to take a look at one more verse here. We've read it before, but it's in Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. Look what Jonah does here when he's called by the Lord. It talks about our title. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof. Do you believe that God has called you on this earth today to do a great work? It's different for every individual. The purpose is the same, but God has called you individually to do something for him. What's your ticket to Tarshish? Or, in English, what's your excuse? Is there something in your mind that you're justifying to get out of doing that work that God has called you to do? I don't know what it may be. It may be a good thing, right? Remember when Jesus invited, had told that parable where people were invited to the wedding feast and people had all sorts of excuses that were good excuses? I bought some oxen and I need to go inspect them or I bought some land, I need to make sure that it's okay. I'm gonna get married, I have to, whatever it may be. Those were all excuses not to go to that important wedding feast, wasn't it? What are our tickets to Tarshish today? What are our excuses? I don't think we have any, do we? There's a story. In 1914, around the time of World War I, there was a pastor in, in England, in Britain, who was visiting the hospitals of people that had been injured in World War I. Now, that must have been horrific because in World War I, they were using weapons that are deemed illegal in today's wartime. They were using gas, mustard gas, and killing gas and things of that time. It must have been terrible. But there was also something that was used during that time period that never had been used before. It was called mortars or shells, right, that exploded upon impact. 
And as that pastor was walking around and talking with people that were dying and encouraging people and blessing people, he was about ready to leave the hospital, and he had a very emotional day, as you can imagine. And as he was walking out of the hospital, there was a big table of injured GIs that were there around it, and they were talking about something. And all of these GIs had one thing in common. It said when people write about them that they can look into the eyes of these types of people and just see nothing. They all had experienced something called shell shock, what we would call PTSD today. And all of them were around this table shell-shocked or having PTSD, and they were talking to each other about how they didn't think that they could ever go back to normal society, how they thought they were scarred for life and they didn't know how they were going to get back to their wives or their children or their jobs, whatever it may be. And that pastor sat down, sat down and he listened to them for about 15, 20 minutes. And as they turned to him, he did something very curious. He took a bowl that was there on the table and he flipped it upside down. And the pastor said, what is this bowl full of? And the soldier said, absolutely nothing. And the GI said, you're wrong. This bowl is full of darkness, for one. And it's full of usefulness. I mean, uselessness, excuse me. It's dark and it's full of uselessness. And the GIs looked at it and agreed. And then the preacher turned over the bowl right side up and poured water in it and said, now this bowl is being used for its full purpose. And he looked at them and said, all of you are going to be full of something. You might be full of self-pity. I don't think you get away with saying this today to people that had PTSD. You might be full of self-pity. You might be full of memories. But fill yourself up with things of the Lord, and you'll be able to go back to your life. And he left. Now that rings true for us today. Brothers and sisters, if you're not full of the Lord, you're going to be full of something. Maybe you're going to be full of yourself. Have you ever known someone that's full of themselves? Maybe you're full of pride. Maybe you're full of your own knowledge. You could be full of somebody else. But brothers and sisters, unless we're not filled by Christ, we're going to be filled with something that shouldn't be there. Jonah had it in him to be filled by the Holy Spirit, didn't he? Jonah had been called to be useful for the Lord. He had been called to do something mighty for the Lord. He was to be filled with the Holy Spirit and go to convert a whole city. But yet he flipped his bowl over and said, I'm going to be full of myself. And where did that get him? To a lot of trials and tribulations, didn't it? He went through that shipwreck, if you will. He was captured there by that whale. He went through some serious trials. And you know, a lot of us go through trials today. Have you ever known somebody, where it's, maybe it's you, where you seem like you go through trial after trial after trial? That person that never catches a break? I don't know someone like that. They just got their new car and they had a flat tire. Then the same week they ran into a tree. And then the next, you know, just over and over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, could it be that some of the trials that we go through are because of our own ineptitude? Not listening to our Savior? That's what happened to Jonah. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not our own wisdom. Amen. If you remember two things from this sermon, remember this as we close here. No matter how far down you may be in rock bottom, no matter how far down you may be in your relationship with God, it's not too late. God will always hear your prayer. He will hear that sinner's prayer. Amen. Number two, the other thing I want you to remember is this. 
If God has called you to do something, go. Don't let anything get in the way, but go. Next week, or not next week, (laughs) but in three weeks, we're going to be doing part two. And in part two, we're going to be taking a look at Jonah as he is spit out in Nineveh, ironically. And he goes to Nineveh and he starts preaching. And one of the things that I really want to connect next week is something interesting that we don't connect very often. I'm just going to give you a little teaser. Remember how we talked about that the Ninevites believed in the god of Ishtar? And the god of Ishtar, the goddess of Ishtar, was half man and half fish? God uses everything for good, doesn't he? Could it be that as, as Jonah was spit out of a fish into Nineveh, that he used his story to connect with the Ninevites? Could it be that, he gave them, that they gave him respect because he came from one of their gods, if you will? Did he say, I just came from a fish which you guys worship in? Maybe some of them saw that. I don't know. But next time we talk, we're going to be talking about how Jonah, in a state where he was not right with the Lord until the end of the book of Jonah, was able to convert a whole city. And not just a city like Big Rapids, but a city that was 10 times worse than Las Vegas or anything that we can imagine. I'm looking forward to doing that with you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for the Sabbath you've given us. And Lord, we know that you have indeed called us. And Father, we want to accept that call no matter what it may be. But Father, more importantly, we want to be full of you. We don't want to be full of ourselves or full of our own beliefs or things of that nature. But Father, we want you to fill our hearts and our lives. Father, come in. If there's anything in our way, help us to understand what that is and get rid of it. This we pray in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.